Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me. So let's jump right in. Minority Money is going to be celebrating Black History Month for the month of February. Black History Month is going to run from February 1st until March 1st. A lot of you may not have known that Black History Month actually started as Black History Week. In 1926, Carter G. Woodson and the Association of Studies of Negro Life and History started this celebration called Negro History Week. It coincided with the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln, which is February 12th, and Frederick Douglass, which was February 14th, both dates which were very important dates to the Black community. Fast forward to 1970. 1970 was the first time that Black History Month was actually proposed by a group of Black educators at Kent State. They proposed that we have a Black History Month. And then, wouldn't you know, five years later, President Gerald Ford took this opportunity to make this a national celebration. So the United States recognized Black History Month. And this was the quote from our president at the time. He said, He urged Americans to seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of Black Americans in every endeavor throughout our history. I thought to myself that this was an acknowledgement of how much Black history was interwoven in American history, almost unseparated. You cannot separate Black history from American history. With that being said, we had a few other countries jump onto this as well. The United Kingdom started celebrating Black History Month in 1987. We had Canada start celebrating Black History Month in 1995. And then the Republic of Ireland started celebrating Black History in 2010. I hope you guys enjoy this celebration of Black History by Minority Money. We got some very, very fun episodes planned for you. And we are going to do our version of how we are going to celebrate Black excellence during the month of February. Hope you enjoy these interviews. Welcome to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. Excited to get back on the show. Hope you guys are enjoying Black History Month. A month is not enough. I mean, it should be Black History Year. We'll call it Black History Month because that's what it's called. But I hope you guys are really enjoying that. Today, we are going to be joined by a guest that I've been wanting to have on for a little while just because of the work he's doing. You guys are in for a treat. I know I say it all the time but you're really in for a treat today. Today, we're joined by Dietrich Asante Mohammed. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So the reason why I'm so excited to have you on is because I read some of the research papers that you had done about the racial wealth gap. I just sit there working in finance as I do. I was sitting there and I was just like, wow, because people talk about it. We see it in the industry, but you don't have the quantitative numbers to go along with it. And when I started to see that, it just blew my mind. And so if you wouldn't mind, Given the Minority Money Podcast listeners a little background of yourself so they can get to know you. Yeah, so Diedrich Asante Mohammed, my title at the current organization I work at, National Community Reinvestment Coalition. My title is Chief of Race, Wealth, and Community. I oversee four departments, a housing counseling network, our D.C. Women's Business Center, our National Training Academy, as well as a new department called Racial Economic Equity. I've been focused on racial economic inequality, particularly the racial wealth divide for about the last 20 years now. 
I started off as the first racial wealth divide coordinator for United for a Fair Economy back in 2003. I went on to work at a think tank Institute for Policy Studies, where I did some more work on racial wealth inequality, headed up the NAACP, National Economic Department, then went on to an organization called Prosperity Now and started there bridging the racial wealth divide initiative. And now I'm at NCRC. So I've been focused doing a lot of different types of work around racial economic inequality, particularly with what I call the racial wealth divide focus. Love it, man. I absolutely love this. And how did you even get into that work? Like, how did like, how'd you get into that? Yeah, I do find that interesting as well, because my job before United for a Fair Economy was I was working for Reverend Al Sharpton back in 2000, helping to be his national coordinator for the National Action Networks across the country. I have always been focused on racial equity, racial justice, used to work at some multicultural centers, did some kind of activism in Harlem, kind of mixing hip-hop and activism, worked at a maximum security prison for women, so did a whole host of things. But as a young man, I did a lot of reading on race and inequality and noted that Dr. King's last book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos the Community, had a serious economic focus. Uh, one of my favorite books, Black Power by Stokely Carmichael, later known as Kwame Torre and Charles V. Hamilton, and their analysis of institutional racism Many people refer to it more structural racism now, had a very serious economic analysis. I eventually, in my early 20s, joined the Nation of Islam and the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan speaks a lot about economics and racial inequality. And I noticed even as I was working with Reverend Sharpton, that he was doing a lot of public work on police brutality, but a lot of quiet work around advocating for greater economic empowerment. So when I saw the opportunity at United for a Fair Economy to be a racial wealth divide coordinator, I was like, this would give me a great opportunity to really look at economics and racial inequality. We can get into it, but I found the racial wealth divide frame as being very helpful in understanding why racial inequality continues and what it's going to take to bridge that inequality. So today I wanted to just talk about unpacking the wealth gap. Let's unpack it a little bit. It might sound funny, but it's pretty packed up pretty well. And people don't understand exactly how impactful it is. Yeah. I oftentimes when I'm doing presentations, I'll start off the presentation with this, where I say the foundation of racial inequality is racial economic inequality. And the foundation of racial economic inequality is the racial wealth divide. I say racial wealth divide versus racial wealth gap, just because I think, you know, gap is kind of like, oh, look, that happened. Like, how did that happen? That just happened by accident, right? By divide. I think it's a little bit more descriptive of highlighting what's the inequality in wealth, what the effect it has in society and maintaining racial inequality as a whole. I'm sure your audience knows, you know, wealth is your debts minus your assets, what you have, you know, uh, left over after you're spending your kind of day-to-day living, your mortgage, what have you. And that type of financial asset is what allows you invest in opportunity, maybe to be a homeowner, start that business, get yourself a car so you can drive to a farther away job or pay for a tutor for your child, what have you. And it's also the money you have to help you during challenging times, right? So you have a savings account. So if things get a little tight, or you're not going to fall too behind on your mortgage. Or if you get a flat tire, you can pay for it. Or substantial savings allows you to retire. These types of things deal with medical emergencies. And so 
this wealth inequality is a foundation to economic stability and advancing economic opportunity. And it is something that's developed over the long term. And I think oftentimes that people confuse even income with financial stability versus wealth. And wealth is usually more strongly correlated with financial stability than your income. And we can break that down a little bit if you would like. Absolutely. So we're talking about the wealth divide. And and as you're saying those things, I'm like, okay, so what about for the listener that might not even have that? Like, we've heard wealth divide, but we haven't even, we don't even know. Like, what, what do you mean by that? We've been doing some estimates of the kind of most recent data we have in survey consumer finance. And we estimate that the median wealth for African Americans, not including depreciating assets like cars or those types of things, is only $7,000. The median wealth, and when we say median wealth, we mean 50% of the population has more than that, 50% of the population has less. The median wealth for whites is around 188000 So you see this massive inequality. You see that whites have almost 20 times the wealth of African-Americans. I think that's important to recognize because income-wise, African-Americans and Latinos make about 60 cents on every dollar of income that whites have. So it's still a substantial inequality, but it's not nearly the depth of inequality that you see with the wealth divide. And I think that helps people, if you put that in context, it helps you understand that why your household, if you're a black household, might be making as much as the white household across the street, but you're still not able to make the same type of financial moves. You have increased economic stress. Just because you get, let's say, a six-figure job, that doesn't mean all of a sudden you have wealth, right? Wealth is something that takes a while to accumulate. And one of the greatest challenges for African-Americans and for Latinos, any community that's really deeply surrounded by asset poverty or low wealth, is that the challenge isn't that you're in low wealth, is that your entire community is in low wealth, right? So even like you said, if you're doing well, you're making a six-figure, that's just income, you know, that doesn't all of a sudden create wealth for you. And you're probably needing to help the lower income, low wealth friends and family around you. That income you're coming in, you're not able to use as much for financial capital returns. You're using that to help you get by and help your friends and family get by. And I guess one other example I like to give is that, you know, even if you're making a good amount of money, and I've talked to people who are making six figures, they don't understand why they can't do the same things their white colleagues are doing. I asked, did you get any help with the down payment of your home? And they're like, no, we didn't. And I was like, and actually, aren't you helping an aunt with pay her rent? And, you know, yeah, we are. Well, okay, so you're making the same income, but you have to do different things with that income. And getting help from you have many more friends and family who have wealth, it's going to be very difficult for you to be able to match their resources. And I'm thinking about that. That in action there is this is what happens. So you're trying to be a financial advisor, right? They say, come on in. You can be a financial advisor. The way that you grow your business is going to your network of friends and family, right? And if you go to your network of friends and family, and if you're, you're Black, you just describe what our network looks like. That's a very important point. And I've done some work with some National Association of Financial Planners and Educators. And, you know, it's also true with just entrepreneurship as a whole, right? And I think one of the greatest challenges is we don't even recognize what a deep challenge it is. So we're asking people who usually have low wealth, then there are other fellow people in the field, whether they're entrepreneurs or financial planners, what have you, to be trying to start a business and run a successful operation. So that's challenging. But then you're using a social network that is oftentimes all in this same type of lower income, 
lower wealth situation. And with this, you need the money more, right? Like you can't, in the entrepreneurship, you see a lot of these big companies, they don't make profits for 10 years. They don't make profits for 20 years. Well, if you're the leading person in your family network, in terms of bringing income, you can't start an entrepreneurial activity and not make money for five years or 10 years. So, and then again, the customer base you're using is oftentimes has a lot less discretionary income. So the profit margin is going to be smaller. That's, to me, that's the importance of the racial wealth divide. It shows how these things have a multiplying effect upon each other. And then it can help you understand why, even with, and I think it's true, there is less outright racial prejudice in society. And we're in 2020, we still haven't seen much change. Like the racial wealth divide hasn't bridged much since they've been collecting data in 1983. African-Americans have generally had twice the unemployment rate of whites since the 1960s, right? So a lot of these economic measures, we haven't seen the improvement. And it's because I think we haven't dealt with the long-term investment and actually mass investment needed to address the racial wealth inequality. And so like, I know you guys are working on a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, how do you even begin to address that? It's the elephant, right? So how do you do that? You know, and I think, you know, was it Booker T. Washington who said, cast your bucket where you are? I mean, that's one thing where you're a financial planner. So I recommend you know, that financial planners start looking at, okay, well, what does the racial wealth divide mean for the financial plans I'm laying out? Because then I've worked all across the country. I haven't seen actual kind of financial planning curriculum that's based on the reality of racial wealth inequality. Oftentimes, it's based on, okay, if you're low income, you should start here. If you're median income, you should start here. There's definitely individual financial plans. But I think so much of the assumptions underlying things is that once you make this type of money, right, and you're ready to buy a home, you should be doing this with your assets. But again, recognizing that Black homeowners are going to have a lot less in financial wealth is probably oftentimes if they're in a Black neighborhood, going to get less of an appreciation on their home and is probably paying more in terms of interest rates over time, where are the financial plans that take that into account and then lead that into financial stability? Your initial question was, what area are you most ready to move on? Because it can be financial planning. It could be in your entrepreneurship planning. It can be in your political advocacy, if that's what you want to do. It can even just be in education and you know sharing more about the realities of racial wealth inequality and help you deal with the psychological tension that racial wealth divide causes for all of us. I agree with everything that you're saying. The importance of this is that now that I'm in a position to be a financial advisor and work with families of color, I can address those issues that you're talking about. I know that. Let's just paint the picture of one of my clients. We've got a family, you know, husband, wife, both of them graduate college. They're minority, let's say they're black. If they both went to college and they have like graduate degree, they went to undergrad, they probably have some loans. Let's say we got each one of them have $100,000 of loans, right? Now they have to go out and get a home and they probably didn't get help on the down payment for the home. So they're probably going to have an FHA loan. They're probably going to put 3% down. They're going to have PMI on it. So obviously their interest rate is going to be higher. Their payment is going to be higher. And the house that they're going to qualify for with an FHA loan isn't going to be in the nice, it's just going to be a little different in the area that they can qualify for, depending on where you're living in the country. Now you take all those factors Then you add in the black tax, if you will, and there's other people that they got to take. I call it the minority tax because I work with minority families. So I see it happen in all kinds of minority groups of people where we're taking care of other family members. And now I can put the plan together, understanding all that, because I've had to live through that. The problem with this, Dietrich, is 
the amount of CFPs or the amount of black advisors that are in the industry with 85,000 of them being CFPs and 1.7% of them being black and the total between black and Latino is 3.5, there ain't enough of us to get out there and tell people. And two, that's just 3.5% of black and Latino financial advisors. I will, you know, willing to venture that not all of that 3.5% have a deep understanding of racial wealth inequality. And there aren't basic templates in which most people can use. Most financial planners take information that have been designed by other places historically and use that as the basis for whatever type of innovations they make in their financial planning. And there's been so little of a basic framework created to deal with Blacks and Latinos. And again, it's not even, oftentimes you think about this inequality, you think we're talking about low income, but I'm not talking about low income. Even African-Americans of high income have much less wealth than whites of similar income. Because again, income doesn't immediately create wealth. Uh, I was looking here, top 20% of household income, which was around $105,000 a year. And I think the median wealth for African-Americans was around 185000 but the median wealth for whites was 445000 right? So all up the ladder, you are dealing with this inequality. And we need financial planners who can deal with that. And we need Black and Latino financial planners who can understand they're not discriminating. They're trying to better deal with the different socioeconomic realities of the different clients they have. Like we said, unpacking. It's a lot to unpack because I think as a financial advisor growing up in some of those circumstances that you're describing, like you just think that's normal. Like you don't even realize that I'm not supposed to get paid as much. We work twice as hard to get paid half as much, right? And so now you got those loans and now you're not making as much money. It's just a whole mess all the way around. And you're usually beating yourself up for doing something wrong, right? Because the way our system is, if you're not doing super well, it's your fault and you're making the wrong decision. But helping to understand that there's always, we can learn more, we can always try to make more strategic decisions, but just having greater analysis and understanding doesn't all of a sudden increase your bank account by 50,000. It doesn't all of a sudden pay off your student debt, right? Or it doesn't pay your mom's rent, right? Those things are real things that you're going to, again, have to work twice as hard to probably get half as far because of the racial wealth divide. I see something, you have something that the race, wealth, and community, like advancing inclusive economic empowerment. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so that is the division that I oversee at National Community Reinvestment Coalition, NCRC. National Community Reinvestment Coalition, the organization started in the early 90s, and it was focused on... There's a thing called the Community Reinvestment Act, which was kind of considered at least connected to some of the last civil rights legislation, right? Like one of the last great civil rights bills was the Fair Housing Bill of 1968. Again, it gets to economics, right? And the CRA, Community Reinvestment Act, was a piece of legislation that was aiming to try to make sure that financial institutions invested into communities they had historically disenfranchised, right? And again, it kind of gets into the racial wealth divide. Like, I've said it's not just that you're in asset poverty, it's your household, your entire community, and your neighborhood, right? Because asset poverty is not just what you have in the bank. It can also be if your public schools aren't as good, right? If your infrastructure is not as good, if their jobs aren't well around you, if there aren't a lot of employers around you. All of those things are assets that oftentimes our communities, because historically of racism, did not have. And I think contemporarily, it's because 
we've been living in a very regressive economy. So as the economy's grown since about the 1980s, those who have wealth are the most likely to grow. But those who don't have wealth are the most likely to remain stagnant or decline. And that's what we've been facing over the last 40 years. So we kind of helped fight against personal prejudice and bring down racial discrimination. But now we've been dealing for the last 40 years with a regressive economy that rewards those who are most financially stable, have greatest financial opportunities, and punishes those who are least financially stable. And we are still in that space. So even if people's personal prejudice isn't hindering you, your credit score is, right? Your lack of income and wealth is limiting your economic mobility. I'm telling you, man, this is what I wanted to hear. And the thing that I, as we say this, it's so crazy because you look at it, it's if you have almost, we see them, people are going to listen to this and there's, well, we see wealthy black people. We're talking about a wealthy community of black people because what happens with this is, and this is just when I think about this and we've painted this picture, you got that same family, right? So that family lives in an okay neighborhood, not in the best because they couldn't afford to live in the best because they didn't make enough money. So they live in that neighborhood and maybe they're one of the best, maybe they're doing better than most of the people that are in the neighborhood just because of the income. They went to school. They both have a degree. Obviously, we know that's going to add to that. However, because of the neighborhood they live in and the schools that their kids go to, now it's just a continual thing that always a fight. And I think people don't talk about that at all. It's just not something that's talked about. Even down to the family structure, you know, have, having two parents in the home, like that's something that else that, that we have to deal with. And, and I, but, think, I do think they're connected, but not the way that people usually connect them. People usually are like, oh, if people would get married and have more stable marriages with their kids, they would be wealthier. I think more and more the evidence is becoming clear that it's harder (laughs) to get married and stay married and have this household if you're completely financially secure, right? Like that is one of the top things that lead to divorce is that financial insecurity, that financial tension, right? I've been married over 12 years and it's been great. And we've both been having strong economic careers. But even, you know, with how great things have been economically for us, marriage is still work. It's a lot of work and having kids is work. And if you add ongoing financial tension, yes, that's really hard to kind of keep this family together. So I think the racial wealth divide is even connected to that. And that's why some more sociologists are saying that getting married is more and more becoming a thing of wealthy people, right? Actually, one other thing I'll put with this is that when you have a deep racial wealth divide, the economic returns on marriage isn't as strong as it is for whites. Because if the median wealth for blacks is 7,000, and that's for a household, right? (laughs) But if you say for a, I think actually I saw Rico Chang did a report for a single black male, I think it was like 25 to 45, median wealth was like $300. The median wealth for a woman was $200. So they get together, they have $500. That's not much money, right? For a white male and a white female, it was like $14,000 and maybe $7,000. Well, there you're starting a $21,000 asset nest egg, right? So you're even, (laughs) you need it more, but you're getting less of a return, just like home. You buy the home and it's important to your wealth development But because black homes and predominantly black neighborhoods appreciate less, not even counting that you probably have to pay more on the mortgage and all these other things, you're getting less of a return. And the same thing's true with college. When you get a college graduation, uh, black college graduates are likely to bring in less money than white college graduates. So even when you're doing the right thing, the racial wealth divide helps put like, as you call it, a black tax or a wealth divide tax, you could call it. You're sitting here listening to this now. What do I do? 
as a listener, whether I'm a consumer or an advisor, what do we do? Because we got to do something. We do got to do something. I think, you know, one thing that you do is you do try to understand the problem, right? Before you tackle the problem, you should have an understanding of the problem. So I think it's important to learn, you know, a little bit more. I think we're still bad in this society as a whole to be real with how most people are living. You know, you see things on television, they say it's middle class and they have like a nicer car than you can imagine, a nicer neighborhood you can imagine, right? First, you know, get real on, you know, understanding the median household income for African-Americans is $40,000. That's household income, right? So if you're making $50,000, you're doing pretty good because that's a lot more than the median household. And the median household income for whites is only $70,000. So I think a lot of people don't even understand that most people in this country really are struggling. Understanding that. And then I do think the way to attack the problem is a wealth building approach, meaning recognizing that it takes a series, a web of assets over time to move you forward economically. It's not going to be the one business deal or the one promotion that generally puts you into economic security. It's going to be the kind of slow grind of getting in a career that can maybe provide you some health benefits, that can give you some opportunity to have some increasing salary over time. Maybe sometimes what you need is time more than income increase. And that gives you some time so you can do a side project, right? And create another, you know, revenue stream. And over time, true wealth is going to be that you're going to help provide a foundation, a more secure economic foundation for your kids or for those who you care about, the generation behind you, so they can go even further, right? If the end goal is just you getting some symbol of wealth, like an expensive car, all you're going to find out quickly that symbols of wealth don't turn into financial assets. Fancy car is usually just a lot of debt. It is not wealth, right? And wealth is really what you can bring to future generations. And I think having a wealth-building mindset can't help you deal with the reality. It's not magic. It doesn't make you wealthy all of a sudden, but it makes you understand the kind of long-term work that's required to move things forward. And it helps you understand, too, that to be wealthy is to have some type of security. I have a job. You know, I'm getting paid. Or like I have a regular stream of income. I have health insurance. I feel like my kids are doing you know, well in their social settings. Like that is wealth. You know, and you just want to build onto those things. And so, so not to be so narrow-minded about the individual dollar, but it's a whole host of things that you know, create financial security and it's true wealth. Almost like building a wealth ecosystem, right? An ecosystem for your wealth. Absolutely. And again, people think that it's all about your own individual effort, but clearly you, know, you have to work hard. That's true. But wealthy people use tax breaks, use business relationships, they're always leveraging assets. That's how people really develop wealth is leveraging assets. If you don't have your own financial stream, you have to leverage other assets. It's nothing wrong if there's a program out there that can help you get a better job, that can, if you're in a strong, a bad economic situation, and there's a program that'll give you money to help feed your kids, help subsidize an apartment, leverage that asset right? To the point where then hopefully you do these things and you're able to get a better job and then you can leverage to get even a better apartment, then become a homeowner, these types of things. Just think about it. It's, it's a long-term process, constantly leveraging different types of assets, networks, supporting family and friend. And it's not how much money you have in your bank account. It's really kind of the you know, stability, joy, and community that you're able to create for yourself and your loved ones. 100%. 100% agree. I love that. Love, absolutely love that. As you know, this is the Minority Money Podcast where we're changing the complexion of wealth. With this month, we are celebrating Black history. What does Black history mean 
to you? Black history is really shapes the way I understand the world and how I want to move in it, right? I think oftentimes African-Americans don't recognize enough how much the history of Black people in this country have become something meaningful to the world's population because of the deep struggles we've had to go through in one of the wealthiest, most powerful countries in the world. And still, we've managed to survive, we've managed to persist, and we're usually considered at the leading edge of what are considered progressive social movements. I do find it fascinating to travel around the country. People around the world, whatever struggles they're in, they oftentimes will look at Malcolm X. They'll look at Martin Luther King. They'll look at different type of Black leaders, Fannie Lou Hamer, Harriet Tubman, as inspirations to their cause. And so I think we underestimate the value of Black history and what it can teach us because it's teaching and inspiring the world all around us. I totally agree. And the impact of Black culture throughout the world is understated in a way. Understated is probably not even the good word to use there, but it's the only word that comes to mind right now. But the Black culture, especially in American culture, like you can't separate Black culture. It's so permeated in the American culture. People don't realize that, that there's so many different things where we have influenced the culture of America, but we don't receive credit for it. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. And I was focusing so much on Black history as Black American history, but you're right. There's also the Black global history, right? And that's, there's so much, you know, and I think just as people around the world have been inspired by us, African-Americans historically have been inspired by people around the world and Black people around the world, right? Like Marcus Garvey from Jamaica had a huge movement in the United States, inspired Black power movement, Nation of Islam, all these different. So oftentimes there's been, you know, Martin Luther King was inspired by Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, right? And Gandhi of India, right? So there's oftentimes been a lot of learning that we've been doing with each other from around the world, and we should continue to do that. And I guess one other thing I just want to say is, you know, I think, too, Black history is important, but then our contemporary Black reality also, to me, is inspiring to me because it shows what the country hasn't done. We haven't gotten past the racism of the, you know, until, like I said, that's why I say the foundation of racial inequality is racial economic inequality. Until we bridge that racial economic inequality, I think best understood through the racial wealth divide, there is no equal society, equal opportunity. We can't get over the past because we're still living in the past because we have this deep inequality. 100%. As we're closing up here, one, I want to ask you about your social media handles first. So if anybody wants to get more of what you're putting out, where can they find you at? Yeah, and there's you know, so many different things. You can look at racial wealth divide entrepreneurship. You can look at personal finance. You can look at public policy. Over the years, I've written about all these things. You can find a lot of that on the Bridging the Racial Wealth Divide WordPress page. Just put in Bridging the Racial Wealth Divide WordPress, and you'll see writings from the last 10 years covers all those areas. You can look at, I have a Bridging the Racial Divide a Facebook page. So you can also check out, and then I have a Diedrich M., D-E-D-R-I-C-K-M as in Muhammad Twitter account so that you can also find more information on. And you can check out the NCRC website, www.ncrc.org. Awesome. We'll make sure we have all those links to the show notes. We'll put all those links in there so people can just click directly on that. In closing, last question for you today. If you can give one piece of advice to our listeners today, what would that be? Quality, racial wealth and equality. Give yourself the grace that I'm sure you deserve in understanding the socioeconomic situation you're in and think of a long-term plan to how can you help build assets and wealth in your life that can make your life more fulfilling and more fulfilling for your loved ones around you. And I think 
you'll find yourself in a much, hopefully stronger place, more peace place in 20 years. Love it. Love it. This has been incredible. Thank you for your time today, Deidre. We really do appreciate that and the work that you're doing, man. We're going to support you in any way we can. We don't have to have you back on for some more conversation, man. I think no, no, no. And I'm really, you know, thankful for the podcast because, you know, getting out this information and having this type of dialogue is essential. And we've only seen widespread ongoing conversations around racial economic inequality over the last five or six years. And I'm glad to see your podcast is helping getting this information out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as all the listeners know, this is the Minority Money Podcast, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly. Until next time. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast, so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here and until next time.